Lord, we thank you for the privilege of preaching your word today and of hearing your word. Thank you for the resources that we have so that those who are not able to be in-house today can hear the word of the Lord and participate in worship. We pray that you would bless this word to our hearts. Speak to us by the Spirit, because Lord, I've, I've said before, and my pastor taught me, anything I can talk somebody into, somebody else can talk them out of. So it's a matter of the Holy Spirit taking truth and making it come alive. We pray that you would bless folks wherever they are. Lord, we thank you, even though this last year has been difficult with not being able to come together as we like, we want to thank you that we have gained new friends and we have expanded our, uh, our tent, so to speak, and people all over the place and other countries are listening and are part of the Christian life family. Pray that you would bless that. Help us to know how to pastor that and how to serve one another and how to serve you in this new context and uh, let the word come alive in our hearts wherever we are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Revelation chapter three, I want to talk to you about the Laodicean warning. You say, well, boy, I'm glad we're finally out of that living in Babylon thing. So what are we talking about today, pastor? We're going to go to the New Testament and see what it's like to live in Babylon. Well, some of you got it. Some of you are slow, but uh, we got the Lord Jesus walked among seven churches of Asia Minor and the Lord willing, as we get probably into the summer, we'll talk about all seven of these churches um, because we really want to be sure that we are becoming everything Jesus wants us to be. And I know a few places better to look at than his up close and personal audit of those seven churches beginning in Ephesus ending in Laodicea. And I want to talk to you a little bit about Laodicea for this reason. Loved ones, I've said I believe that the church is in Babylon. I've said that I believe we're under judgment uh, as a society and as a nation. Uh, and judgment begins first with the house of God. But the beautiful thing about the Lord's judging of his people is that he always gives them a path back home. And if we will align with him. He'll give us a path back home. When Judah went into Babylonian captivity, they were there. Uh, God said, you're going to be there 70 years. But God was so gracious, even before the 70 years was up, they began to come back. A few here and a few there. And then by the time the 70 years was over, they were re-entrenched uh, in the land. And you see, that's why we can preach judgment with hope in our heart, because the Lord's judgment of his people is not terminal. Now there comes a day when the judgment on this world and this system on this Babylon is terminal, but God always gives his people a way back if we will take it. So what I want us to talk about today, I want us to understand the dangers of not seeing the way back. See, a lot of you are just saying, you know, 2021 was bad. This year will be better. And I hope I never have one of those years again. But we don't understand the process he has us in. The worst thing we could do is just say, well, I survived 2020 and maybe things will get back to normal. I don't know if things will ever be back to normal. But I do know this. God is working in his people and God is extending mercy to everyone that will come home. And that will respond to him. Now you remember when, when they went in the land, we're going to talk about this in just a moment. They were going to rebuild the house of God and they were going to re-infiltrate the culture and let their light shine. But one of the biggest things they were after, you remember this barrel is typical of so many of our lives. We've got this whole 53 gallon context and capacity that God says, this is what I want you to do. This is what I want you to be. I know the plans I have for you. You say, yeah, but I've ruined it. No, that's what he told to the people that were about to go into Babylonian captivity. 
He said, I know the plans I have for you and they're not plans to destroy you. They're not plans for you to live at, at half speed all the rest of your life. They're plans to give you a future and a bright promise. And God is the one <coughs> that can not only forgive our sins, but is able to restore that that the enemy has broken. I remember in VBS and I, and I appreciate the lesson I really do. I appreciate the lesson. I remember the name uh, of our speaker was Dr. Pepper. Uh, I, I, we, we were so impressed that he had his doctor of divinity and his last name was Pepper. So he went by Dr. Pepper and, and Central Baptist Church where I went to VBS would give everybody Dr. Peppers to drink because Dr. Pepper was there, there speaking. But he told us a story about, he said, you can go and drive nails into a barn he said, and the nails can be removed, but the scars remain. And he tried to teach us that if you do wrong, God can forgive you, but you're going to carry the scars of that the rest of your life. And I understood what he was saying. And I understand today what he was saying. There's some truth in that in some circumstances and situations. There are some things that will carry scars for the rest of our life. You know, if you rob a bank, God can forgive you, but you're going to have a record. You know, I understand that. But I wish they had talked to us a little bit more about the God who's able to fill in the nail holes and the God who's able to repaint the barn. And God, some things we just, we just carry, but some things God is able to absolutely restore and make all things new. We're made new, but he's able to even cosmetically make things new. And God said, now I want you to rebuild my house. I want you to re-infiltrate the culture. But he said, I need you to fix your life. I need you to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment, a little more detail in a couple of weeks. But you see, right now, if I wanted to fill this barrel up, it would be, I would think, boy, I've, I've got it made. Because look at this, this goes all the way from top to bottom. But you know what? The fact of the matter is I can't fill this barrel any higher than this right here. I, I, I can't get any higher than this right here because of the blocks of wood that are missing. And our lives are like that sometimes. It's not that God has lessened what he wants to do or he hasn't lost his, his ability. The prophet Isaiah said, the Lord's arm is not short that he cannot save. His ear is not heavy that he cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. And we need to understand that no matter what kind of potential we've got, until we rebuild the walls, just like they rebuilt Jerusalem, we're going to be limited in what we can accomplish. If you don't have respect for authority, you'll never become everything God wants you to be because the wall is torn down. We have a lot of people feel that the church persecutes them. They won't let me do this. They don't recognize my gift. And what happens is you're wanting to live at this level when you've never taken time to wait before the Lord and get these holes fixed. So that's what God is doing. Y'all stop this. Now listen to the text. I'm not going to fall into the trap of you pulling me down a rabbit hole. Let's read. I love you so much. This is the seventh message to the seventh church. And I'm lifting these few verses out of a two chapter conversation that Jesus is having to the angel. And by the way, angel is the correct or uh, interpretation, but the meaning of angel, uh, most conservative scholars and a lot of liberal scholars, the vast majority of scholarship agrees that the angel, which means messenger, was referring to the pastor of the church. Pastor has an awesome responsibility for whatever's going on in the church. It's a frightening thing. This shouldn't make a pastor's head swell up with pride. This should make him fall down before the Lord with fear, understanding that God holds him responsible for the life of the church. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the origin of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. 
Because you were lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth, spew you out of my mouth. Now, for years, I thought God was saying, if you're just not on fire, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And that drove me to a life of works because what does it mean to be on fire? I knew I could pray more. I knew I could preach more. I knew I could study more. Everything that I was trying to do to study the Lord uh, and, and follow the Lord, I, I, I was constantly under condemnation because I knew I could be more on fire. But that's not what he was saying at all. There's a time to be on fire. There's a time to, to be to be cool, if you want to put it that way. Not like Joe Cool, but a time to be cool and, and rest in the Lord. The fact of the matter is he said, water can serve a purpose when it's cold. Water can serve a purpose when it's hot. Cool water can refresh. Warm water can soothe aching muscles and can cleanse your body. He says, your problem is that you're just lukewarm. He says, you don't serve the purpose of cold water. You don't serve the purpose of hot water. You've lost your purpose. You are a water with no purpose. And he says, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have no need of anything. And you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garment so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And eye salve to apply to your eyes so that you may see. Laodicea was known, their, their, one of their biggest industries was Phrygian stone that would be ground into powder and mixed and it created a, a salve for eyes. And uh, it, 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 it supposedly helped people be able to see. He took their main economy of the city and said, you, what you do in the natural, you need to do in the spiritual. Anoint your eyes that you may see. He says, those I love, I rebuke and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. The one who overcomes, I will grant to him, and of course her, to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat with my father on his throne, the one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And loved ones, lest I forget to say this at the end of the message, what God is after in the church as much as anything is for people to begin to understand how important it is for them to have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying. Now, I'm going to do what I don't usually do. I'm going to read the text twice, but I'm going to read it from another translation, New Living Translation. Write this angel, excuse me, write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things that you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich and buy white garments from me so that you will not be shamed by your nakedness and ointment for your eyes that you will be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love. I love this. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. The central truth is best described in my mind from, with a quote from G. Campbell Morgan. G. Campbell Morgan pastored the church uh, that um, R.T. Kendall pastored in London uh, about, oh, what would it have been? About 60 years, I guess, before R.T. did. This is what G. Campbell Morgan said. 
We cannot organize revival, but we can set our sails to catch the wind from heaven when God chooses to blow upon his people once again. From onecry.com, there has been issued a state of spiritual emergency. I want to read part of it to you and you can go to onecry.com. Um, this is not an endorsement of everything they say or everything they do. I just agree with their state of spiritual emergency. With heavy hearts, we recognize that the church in America is in a state of spiritual emergency. Like the churches warned in Revelation, we have become lukewarm and compromised and the light of our witness has grown dim. We confess that despite access to more resources and biblical teaching than any other group of believers in history, we are not characterized by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. We acknowledge our lack of widespread impact for Christ on our lost and disintegrating culture. But God is waking us from our slumber and mobilizing us to pray earnestly for revival. Together, we desire to travel the narrow, the narrow road of brokenness, humility, and repentance. You know what? People in Laodicea do not want to travel that road. They are only interested in prosperity. They're only interested in their image. And they spend all of their time trying to figure out how to get the water to this level without repairing the barrel, without rebuilding the walls. In desperation for God, we cry out for the extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit in our day. We believe that true revival is the only hope to reverse our spiritual recession and enable us once again to display the beauty of Jesus Christ and his gospel throughout the world. Because we believe that only Christ can save, heal, and revive, we pledge to turn in humble repentance from every sin God reveals to us. We pledge to pray with urgency for spiritual recovery and awakening. We uh, pledge to unite with other believers in spreading the hope of Christ-centered revival. Now, there are four things that I want us to look at in the little bit of time we've got left today. Number one, I want us to understand how Jesus evaluates a church, whether it's an individual church or uh, you know, a local church or whether it's the church universal. We want to understand how Jesus evaluates a church. Number two, we want to understand the nature of his correction. Number three, we want to understand what the return, when it's time for the return, what it will look like. And you've got to understand, following Jeremiah's pattern, some will begin to return earlier than others. And number four, we've got to ask questions that are hard, but they're healing questions. They're healing questions. Understanding how Jesus evaluates a church. Four things very quickly. Number one, Jesus always looks past superficial qualities. He always looks past them. He acknowledges them. He told the church at Laodicea, you have this name. You have this reputation. He would even tell the church at Ephesus, look, you've done this and you've done this and you've done this, but it's in your past. He, he looks past superficial qualities. Number two, he accepts only the audit of heaven. You say, what do you mean he accepts only the audit of heaven? Um, I, I remember a picture that I saw one time. It said, welcome to such and such church, friendliest church in the valley. That was the big sign. Then there were all kinds of other signs. Stay off the grass. No parking. Visitors must enter. You know, you know it was everything else denied that they were the friendliest church in the valley. He looks past superficial qualities and accepts only the audit of heaven. That means he knows what the world says about us. When you read about Laodicea, you read about the other churches. Jesus said, I know what you're up against. He told one of the churches, you, you are pastoring where Satan's headquarters is. 
He, he knows what the world says about us. Number two, he knows what we say about ourselves. To the church at Laodicea, you say, this is your estimation of yourself, but Jesus settles on what he knows about us. Okay? He looks past superficial qualities. He accepts only the audit of heaven. Number three, he speaks to the shepherds of the flock first and foremost. And you say, Pastor, why are you dwelling on this? It's a warning to every pastor, whether it's the pastors of this church or pastors that might be listening in from another church. Um, we have an awesome responsibility. God holds pastors responsible for the conduct of their church. And that's why a pastor may uh, tend to mind your business sometimes. It's because he understands that not only will you be judged for your life, but I will be judged for your life. He, he said, uh, and my boy, this is self-serving. I mean, it, it sounds that way. He was telling a church in one instance to, to, to give honor and to respect those that teach them. He says, because, and that's not what I'm trying to say. He says, because they must give account for you on that day of judgment. Now I want to say this. I know this sounds self-serving, but some of you need to decide who your pastor is. I, I, there's nothing wrong with other voices. There's nothing wrong with other sources. But I tell you, every week, every week, every single week, I deal with somebody whose membership is in this church, but they are confused because of what brother or sister so-and-so says. And I, I, I'm not, you say, well, pastor, you're telling me I just need to pay attention to you. No, I'm saying if you can't pay attention to me, I say this as lovingly as possible. Find a church where you respect the pastor and get in that church and stop being double-minded because God is raising up pastors that are aware of their awesome responsibility. And one of the best things you can do, whether it's me or someone else, find a pastor you trust and follow them and stop being blown about by every wind of doctrine. The main reason I put this in the outline is to beg you, to beg you to pray for me and to pray for the pastors that we will hear from the Lord, that we will keep our lives clean, that we will live above reproach and that we will have hearts that hear the spirit of God more than we've ever had them in our lives. Number four, he always presents a path back home for those willing to take it. Now that's how Jesus evaluates a church. He says, I'm not going to look on the superficial qualities. Only what I know, only what heaven produces will be what I use. He said, I'm going to speak to the shepherds. And he said, I will present a path back home for those willing to take it. Now you say, okay, I'm going to take the path back home. How do I walk through this correction of the Lord? That's a good one. Number two on your outline, when applicable, Jesus honors the remnant. You say, if you are a part of the remnant, if, if a church is part of the remnant, um, that it, you may be a church like Smyrna that you are, you're not perfect, but you're so in touch with the Lord. You may be a church like Philadelphia where he says um, uh, that I want to honor you. Smyrna and Philadelphia were the only two churches that he didn't have some balancing criticism or judgment of. So he looks to honor the remnant. In other words, Jesus is not looking to just crush you. He's looking to honor you because he remembers our frame that we are but dust. Uh, the King James says a smoking flax he will not quench and a bruised reed he will not break. And we say, what in the world does that mean? I like the way the New Living Translation puts it this way. He says, he will not break that which is broken and he will not put out the smallest flame of hope. His job is to, is to encourage the remnant and he loves to honor those that honor him. So he wants to honor the remnant. That's when applicable, when possible, is this in your notes? Okay, when possible, Jesus celebrates our spiritual attributes and victories. 
He had a big word of correction for the church at Ephesus. He says, you have lost your first love. You need to repent. You need to go back and live like you used to live. You need to return to your first love. But he said, but I want to congratulate you for doing these things right. And thirdly, when necessary, he will offer a healing criticism. He will offer a healing criticism. Number three on your outline, understanding the return from exile in Babylon. Loved ones, this series of sermons we're going through, this moment in time called the end of 2020, the beginning of 2021, it is only the beginning. It's not going to be over when the governor says, go back to full activity. Oh, that'll be a happy day. I'm so excited about Easter. We're going to have two Sundays, I mean, two services on Easter. I'm so excited about that. Hopefully have more people feel comfortable to come back. But I want to tell you, whatever good or bad happens, what God is doing in this nation and what God is doing in his church is not going to be over with a governor's mandate. We've got to understand that this is just the beginning. And once we understand how we got here, how did we get here? Then and only then do we begin to understand our return. We must understand that return or revival or renewal or awakening, whatever term you want to use, can only be orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't know what that's going to look like. We don't know what the return will look like. We don't know what the awakening will manifest as. But we know that when God starts telling us, get busy, we know that when God says, I'm going to return you to the place from which you have fallen, we know there are three things. And again, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. I just want to set it in motion for you again. Number one, we must rebuild God's house. That means we must receive his word. We recommit to covenant. We recover his presence. You see, that's what happened when you got saved. Your life was shattered just like the city of Jerusalem. And the first thing God tended to, I mean, he could have said, well, we got to work out a sewer system. We got to get the walls built. We got to refertilize the land all around the city. But the first thing he said was get the house of God built. The recovery of God's presence is the first thing that happens when we come back to Jesus. And that doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean the journey's over. It means the most important thing has happened. God has moved back into his house. Okay? So we want to rebuild God's house. That means we recommit to his word, his covenant and his presence. And we'll talk more about that later. But I am, every day that passes, I'm getting a more passionate zeal for the presence of the Lord. I want to know the presence of the Lord like I've never known it before. I want to walk in his presence as never before. I want to walk in the shadow of his wings as never before. You say, oh, let's do it. Well, that's fine. But right after you do that, he says, rebuild the walls. No, no, pastor, I like presents better. Can we just, can we talk about presents? He said, you're going to rebuild the walls. It's called restoring our dwelling place. It's rebuilding the walls of defense that were lost. And in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is a beautiful picture of the Holy Spirit who comes to the city that has has rebuilt the house of God. And now he says to set everything right, we're going to rebuild the walls of the city. That's what David was talking about. He understood when he said, the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I need. And then he went on to say, he restores my soul soul. He restores my soul. He doesn't just save my spirit, but he begins a work of restoring my soul. And this is the kind of thing we can't have a class that says how to rebuild this wall. I mean, we, we can, but you know what I'm saying? This is something that's very, very personal. And it's something that's very, very difficult. And you'll notice something when they begin to rebuild the walls. Listen to me. It got to the point where each worker who was working on the walls had a tool in one hand and a weapon in the other. 
a tool in one hand and a weapon in the other because they knew that the inhabitants of the land, the people that previously were in charge of Jerusalem, were going to try to stop the rebuilding of the walls. And so they had to learn, yep, I've got to work on this. I need to pray. I may need to go to counseling for anger management. I may need to learn how to deal with my past. I need to go to class. You know, I, I, need, to, I need to hold my trowel in one hand and my 357 in the other. Not literally. I'm talking about spiritually. Okay. He did two things. He said each worker will have a weapon and a tool. And that tells us that you are going to have to fight your way back to wholeness. Now, Nehemiah helps you. The Holy Spirit helps you. And some places the walls were just toppled a little at the top. Some places the walls were broken halfway down. Some places they were all the way down to the ground. And every one of us have places in our lives that are just down to ground zero. Others of us, it's not too bad. In fact, we probably need to focus on some other things rather than, than that. But he said, you're going to have a tool, you're going to have a weapon. And this is the next thing he said. He said, tell the people to work on the wall that's in front of their dwelling place. You say, but pastor, my calling is to help others with their wall. No, he says, open your front door. Or if you're out in the fields, Look at the place that's right in front of your field. In other words, he says, you need to work on rebuilding your life. And when you get a grip, you say, oh yeah, but the, the, those, those Babylonians, they pulled the wall down. Yep, and God's taking care of the Babylonians. Well, why doesn't my neighbor help me with this? Well, if your neighbor does their job, their job will blend into your job. The wall fits together. It's kind of a tongue and groove existence. I mean, not, that's not the way the walls were built, uh, except in some situations. But what he's saying is what is involving your life, work on that. You can't say, well, I know I've got a horrible temper, but Jesus, if you were married to my wife, you'd have a horrible temper too. <laughs> nope. This isn't about you fixing your wife. This is about you fixing you. It's not about you fixing your boss. It's about you fixing you. And it's amazing how when we rebuild the walls in front of our house, that it motivates people to rebuild the wall in front of their house as well. Now, he knew it was going to be a struggle. And, but when you get the presence of God back in its place, and when you and I straighten our lives up in its place, then we begin to reanimate the culture then we become a very bright light in a very dark place. Uh, he tells us, see, again, I, I'm, I'm not trying to be critical, but I just need to know that you understand what I'm saying. We have bought into a church model that says, let's see how much like the culture we can become in order to win them. And I understand the base level of that. I understand what's at the heart of that. I don't think that's evil people are trying to say, let's sin. I, but I think they have lost the, the, the understanding that we are counterculture. We are counterculture. We want our young people to speak differently. We want our young women to dress differently. We want our young men to dress and act differently. We want our homes to be different than the homes in the community. We want the way we live to be different from the way others live. Not to, not to point a finger at them, not to blast them, but we want there to be something different about us so that the world begins to ask questions again. Now let's talk about the healing questions. See, he says, come out of Babylon. What are the questions we have to ask? Pastor, okay, we're, we're, we're in Babylon, we're, out of, we're in judgment. What are the questions we need to ask? You say, I don't, we don't need any questions answered. We just need our politicians to do right. We don't need any questions answered. We just need the churches to do right. 
Let me tell you, there's enough fault and blame and sin to go around to every institution in America. So what are the questions? Here's question number one. Why was Jesus on the outside? Knocking in order to be invited back inside. That wasn't natural. He was the one walking in the midst of the churches. He's the one that is is the reason that we meet. It would be unthinkable for us to have Jesus on the outside. But the fact of the matter is Jesus was on the outside knocking in order to be invited back inside. What caused that? I'll tell you. I remember one time that uh, uh, it was a bad storm, bad storm. And I don't remember which of the kids it was. I think it was one of my girls. But it looked like it was just going to be one of those get inside and stay inside till the storm's over. And uh, I went through the house. I checked the windows. I checked the door. And I thought, oh, I'm glad I did this. Front door's unlocked. I locked it and um, turned on the alarm and went to bed. And I called out for the kids to come pray. And one didn't show up. And I thought, oh, must have fallen asleep. So I went to the bedroom. They weren't there. I walked through the house. They weren't there. And then... I walked by the front door and I heard a, Daddy! (laughs) You know what I had done? Because I was not aware of the situation, I wasn't aware of what was going on, I'd locked my child out in the storm. (laughs) And they couldn't couldn't set the alarm without breaking a window. They couldn't, they they were knocking, but it was lost with the sound of a TV and the, the thunder and lightning that was going on. And I finally realized what had happened and I opened the door and if looks could have killed, (laughs) dripping, I am so sorry. I didn't know you were outside. And it it was not a very respectful answer, but I deserved it. Well, me not being inside should have tipped you off. (laughs) The the idea is we're not aware. The, The first thing that the church that drove Jesus outside, Jesus said, you're unaware of your lukewarmness. He says, it's not that you've dried up. You've got a name that you live. That was true of several churches. He says, you've got water, but the problem is the water is not serving a purpose. It's neither cold nor hot. The Old Testament prophet asked this. He says, why do you come together for my feasts? God said, God said this. God said, I would rather you not come together and sacrifice than to come together the way you come. They were unaware of their lukewarmness. They were unaware that their fire had gone out. They were unaware that there was no passion burning in their soul anymore. And not only were they unaware of their lukewarmness, they were satisfied with their material riches. They had a lot of stinking money in the bank. They had probably just completed a building program and everything was full speed ahead. He said, you say that I am rich and wealthy and have need of nothing. He says, but you don't know that you in fact are poor and miserable and wretched and blind and naked. They were were satisfied with material riches. There was a time in church history when one of the uh, leaders of the church in England took a reformer uh, type person through a church and showed them all the beautiful decorations and all the beautiful furnishings. And this spiritual leader with great pride said, no longer does the church have to say, silver and gold have I none. And the reformer said, that's true, but neither can you say, but what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. 
We look at the wrong reports sometimes to find out the health of the church. Please, if, if any district officials are here, don't misunderstand me. I'm not critical of what we do on a district level or a national level. But I, every time we give out awards for the church that did the most or gave the most, I know that has its place and I know it's not, not evil, but I never sit through one of those. And our church wins a lot of those. But I want to tell you, I never sit through one of those ceremonies, whether it's at general council or district council, that I don't sit there and develop the conviction some of the greatest churches will never show up on these sheets. Some of the greatest churches that have made the most sacrifices will never get anyone's reward. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not against the rewards. I'm not against the awards. I, I, I think it's good to recognize accomplishment. But I'm simply saying we can get so locked into those things that we forget that in heaven's viewpoint, the first shall be last and the last can be first. And they were blinded by self-deception. They said, I don't have need of anything. When is the last time, loved one, that you have just spent a night in the presence of God? Turn the TV off and just spend a couple hours in the presence of God and just say, Lord, how do you see me? How do you see our family? How do you see our life? And then stay in his presence long enough to listen, long enough to hear unawareness of our lukewarmness, being satisfied with material riches, being blinded by self-deception, that will drive Jesus out of the house. Now, how do we open the door? <laughs> well, it's easy, but it's not easy. Number one, you've got to accept heaven's currency. I can see Jesus if I mean, this is my sanctified imagination. I can see him pointing to the bank statements that had just come in the mail. He said, you say you have need of nothing, but I counsel you to buy gold tried in the fire. I counsel you to get heaven's riches. And loved ones, churches are not great churches because of what we usually designate greatness as. But they are great because they've walked with Jesus. They've walked for years through the fire of persecution or trust or deliverance. And it's the same with families. It's the same with individuals. That's why I encourage you, if you're a young Christian, don't get too haughty and don't get too proud of yourself. Paul said church leadership cannot be a novice because they'll be lifted up with pride. They don't understand true riches. A lot of times I've seen people that, that have an incredible talent and they've been told they have a talent so much that they don't understand they don't have true gold yet. They've not walked with Jesus long enough yet. And that's why maturity is so important. And that must be very true because I'm getting no good response here. We have to accept heaven's currency. And number two, we have to accept heaven's correction. We have to accept heaven's correction. We have to let there be an absolute standard and an absolute authority in our life other than our own judgment. And we've got to accept heaven's compassion. He said, listen, if you'll just open, we can pick up where we left off. It's, it's absolutely an amazing proposition how do we benefit by opening the door? If we do get the door open, how does it benefit us? Two things, intimacy and reward. If you and I will open the door, if a church will open the door, if the United Methodist Church will open the door, if the Assemblies of God will open the door, if the Roman Catholic Church will open the door. I mean, it's as, this door is as big or as small as you want to make it. He said, I will come in and sup with you, the King James says. And that, that doesn't just mean we can, we can eat together. It means that. But it was the idea of intimacy. The Lord's Supper, I mean, the communion, that most intimate of, of connection with the Lord was, was called a supper. Uh, when, when the people of God were to come together, they broke bread together because a meal spoke of intimacy. He said, if you will open your door, if you will let me in, you'll know intimacy with me that you've never known. And loved ones, I want to tell you, 
in the days that are ahead, you and I are all receiving a challenge from the Lord. We may have never had a prayer life. We may have misunderstood a prayer life. Prayer life may have never been our strength, but I want to tell you the host of heaven, angels, and, and, and the Lord himself is working to bring every one of us to a place where we understand the value of being shut in with God and do it. If you're not used to it, do it for 10 minutes at a time, grow to 30 minutes, grow to an hour. Intimacy, but he doesn't stop there. He said, and for those of you that do it, not only will you know me now, but on the other side, it will be worth it all. We used to sing that song, it will be worth it all. When we see Jesus, life's trials will seem so small. When we see Christ, one glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So let us run the race till we see Christ. It will be worth it all. You, you say, well, I've tried praying and I just didn't know what to say. Then get back in the prayer closet and learn a new language. I, I guarantee you, any, anybody that has ever told me, I, I tried to spend an hour in prayer and it, it just was just devastating. Without exception, I've never met anybody that this was not the, the, the rule. Um, they didn't understand prayer. They tried to make prayer about liturgy or about ritual, and they didn't understand it was about intimacy. And God said, if you will live a life in the secret place, and that's what we're calling you to. If you will live a life in the secret place, God said, not only will you have incredible intimacy with me, but in this life, he says, but when you get to the other side, there will be an incredible reward. Uh, let's, let's wrap it up. This renewal may start, Christian life lessons, may start on a small scale, perhaps even individually. Uh, understand, understand this. You may have to go against what all of your friends are doing. We've just come through a year where everybody and their brother tells you what you think. If you do this, it means this. If you don't do this, it means this. And churches and pastors were blown away for about six months in 2020. How do I keep everybody happy? How do I know? How, do, how can I tell them that's not in my heart? And that's not what I meant by that. And you know what I figured out? I figured out I was going to die an early death trying to prove people wrong in their estimation of what my actions or inactions meant or didn't mean. The only thing that matters is heaven's audit. The only thing that matters is am I pleasing him? We're seeing an entire culture turned on its head. Could be good, could be bad, could be ugly. Probably a mixture of all of the above. But I want to tell you what's happened. We as a culture have lost the concept of being answerable to one whose opinion matters. I can't be everything. You can't be everything. You can't share everybody's burden. You can't share everybody's perspective. And you mustn't be boxed into a corner where you are afraid to sneeze because of what people think. You've got to understand that this is, a mat this is between me and God. He's knocking. In that famous picture, I know I've told you this, of Christ you know, light of the world. He's knocking at the door. Um, it's a famous painting. And in most versions of it, you, you can find a version of it where somebody has corrected the artist's error. But the artist painted all this wonderful detail, but he there's one thing missing. It was a doorknob on the door. How do you have a door without a doorknob? And somebody said, we can't believe you left out that detail. He said, that was intentional. He said, because on this door, the only doorknob is on the inside. Christ won't open the door. Nobody else can open the door. It has to come from your heart. Renewal may start on a small scale, perhaps even as individuals. And here's the second thing. We must cultivate lives 
that hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. So many voices, so much anger, so much rage. God gave me a, a vision a few months ago and it was one of those with the angel of the Lord in it and my family and I were sitting around a table and we were just eating a very simple meal, just a very simple meal. And we knew, I knew from the, the setting that it was a difficult time. It was a time of societal upheaval and we could hear sirens and we were just thinking they sounded closer and closer. We heard gunshots and we, we realized that we were sitting at the table and we're surrounded by a culture of violence, anger, animosity. And the angel of the Lord put his hand on my shoulder and just leaned forward to whisper in my ear. He said, eat your soup. Eat your soup. Now, was he saying ignore it? Was he saying that's not real? No, he was saying, he was saying this. The only way to survive the days ahead are to hear the voice of the Spirit. To hear the voice of the Spirit. Father, what an invitation. I stand at the door and knock. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Lord, I want to thank you for not forcing your way in. Even though you have the right to do that. And we'd be better off than making the wrong decision if you did. But Lord, I believe that you trust the work of the Spirit in us. If any man hears me and will open, it will change their lives. Lord, I'm asking you to help Christian life at 2700 Bush River Road, pastored by this frail, weak, though good-looking man, just kidding, just kidding. Lord, we are so weak, we are so frail. But would you do something absolutely miraculous? Will you help us to hear your voice? Would you help us to respond? In Jesus' name.